0: The reading this morning can be found in John's Gospel, chapter 16, and you can find this on page 1084 in the Church Bibles. We begin to read at verse 16. Jesus is continuing to prepare the disciples for what happens next. John chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean just by saying, In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you now, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, You have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: struggles of our lives, our hopes and dreams. Lord, I pray this morning as we look at your word, as we hear your word, that we would hear your voice above all others. We'd hear what you want to say to us and what you want to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder this morning whether there's anybody who would like to say they, they love to wait? Anybody like to say they love to wait? Or they're good at waiting for things? No hands, no nods of the heads. Anybody live with somebody like that? No, not, okay, well, let me, maybe I'll sit down and we'll try again somewhere else. Well, think about, for example, this week when you've been in your car and you got stuck in some traffic lights that are red. The are traffic lights that don't seem to change. They don't seem to change for ages and ages and ages. And you're sat there to begin with, semi-patient. You've got a meeting. You're already late for half an hour to the meeting you're due to go to. And then they don't change. They wait. It's like the ones just down here, by the way, that are constantly broken. But that's clearly me, uh, my personal waiting. This morning I came down Lansdowne towards church. And there's a person who pulled out in front of me at about five miles an hour and proceeded to go down Lansdowne at five miles an hour. And to begin with, I was kind of, it's Sunday morning, I'm going to preach, it's fine. Then after a few minutes, where it didn't go beyond about 10 miles an hour, and they broke in the middle of, of Lansdowne and just stopped in the middle of the road. We have trouble waiting. We have trouble waiting, we're impatient. We've got things to do, we've got people to see. And there's also Bath Christmas Market that tries us all. I know I've had conversations with some of you already where you know that that's the kind of thing that these three weeks of the year that you know. But wait. I don't want to wait. Why should we wait? When I am in the queue at a coffee shop in Cafe Nero, for example, listening to the pipe music that really irritates me anyway, and I wait for two minutes for the barista to make me my one-shot decaffeinated gingerbread latte, (laughs) what's the barista's problem? Why can't they just do it? I'm waiting. Come on. Get me my drink and get it now. I don't need to wait. I've got things to do. I've got people to see. Research on the internet habits says that the time a page takes to load determines a huge amount. So for example, Amazon, the company reckon that if a page fails to load by one second, people will have already clicked somewhere else if it doesn't get there within one second. They've calculated that actually if a page slows down in loading for Amazon, it loses them two billion pounds in terms of their business, just because a page takes a second longer to load. 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, there was a book written by a person called James Gleick. It's called Faster, The Acceleration of Just About Everything. And he has really st- interesting examples of how everything in contemporary society has been speeded up. It's been accelerated pretty much whatever it is we, we do. So for example, for someone in my own position who is a parent, you can now buy books, you can buy things to do one minute bedtime stories. You can get the whole bedtime experience done in one minute for the parent who doesn't have time, where he doesn't have time to do all these things. You know, the, um, forget the Seven Dwarves, for example, the story of the Seven Dwarves. basically becomes the, the prince meets Snow White, kisses her, wakes her up, and they get married and they live happily ever after, job done, let's go, that's finished, let's not bother about it, the end. The theme we're looking at this morning is, and over this Christmas period, is joy. And as we, as we began our event last week thinking about anticipating joy, most of us who've maybe been in a church many years or been grown up in a church or have been a Christian for a period of time will know that joy is a topic that features regularly throughout the Bible. There are hundreds of verses devoted to joy. We see that joy is the mark of biblical Christianity. Joy is a mark of followers of Jesus. Wherever we go nowadays, and maybe not you, but as I go around town, you'll notice that shops, uh, particularly restaurants, bars, uh, advertise happy hours. Slightly ironically, uh, when I was a student, I, uh, my parents lived in, East, in West Sussex in a town called East Grinstead. I spent a summer uh, serving and working in a, a cafe on the side of the road, I think it's in the A21, uh, just down to East Grinstead, called the Happy Eater Restaurant. I don't know whether you remember those, Roadside Cafe. Do you want to know something about the Happy Eater restaurants? Very few people were happy. <laughs> As you looked round, There was very little happiness in the Happy Eater restaurant. That wasn't just because I was working there, uh, since you asked. But what about us? What about joy? There's something different between happiness and joy. But it's your life this morning, marked and characterized by joy. Is St. Swithin's, marked and characterized by joy. If it's not, how are we going to get there? If you can't say yes to that, how are we going to get there over this Christmas season? How are we going to reach that place where we discover where joy is found, but not just discover where it's found, but we receive joy too? And that's the journey one over this Christmas time. But today I want to talk, as we prepare for Christmas, about two subjects that you often don't sit together very neatly. Waiting and joy. Waiting and joy. We don't put those two things together. We don't think they sit together. We don't think they should be together. But this morning I'm going to talk about finding joy while we wait. Seven times in those first four verses that Maureen read for us, the Apostle John mentions this little term, a little while. A little while. A little while a little while a little while in the context of suffering and in the context of joy too if you look at verse 16 Jesus went to went on to say in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me now Jesus is here at the point before his death And what he's speaking about is the fact that his earthly life, in the form it is now, is about to come. He's about to approach his death. And he's talking about the period of time between his death on the cross and his resurrection. That's what many people have said and understand. He's saying, I'm going to be taken from you in this death, but I'm going to come back again. I'm going to be resurrected after a little while and restored to you most Bible commentators understand that that little while phrase is about that. But not all biblical commentators say that. There's a long tradition of people understanding what Jesus is saying slightly differently. For example, two other plausible explanations for it, and I'll come to why this is important in a minute. Some say that the little while is a time between Jesus' ascension when he ascended up to heaven that is celebrated on the stained glass window, but uh, as part of the church, and when he sends, God sends the Holy Spirit. Remember that Jesus ascended 40 days after his resurrection. His disciples waited in the upper room for 10 further days. On the day of Pentecost, on the 50th day, after Jesus, Jesus from heaven sent the Holy Spirit. In a little while, you won't see me, but in a little while, you will see me, and I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. The other explanation that's also credible is there's a long tradition since, particularly uh, one of the church, early church leaders, someone called Augustine. In the history of the church, Augustine, way back in the fifth century, explained that a little while is the time between the ascension of Jesus and Jesus' second coming. I believe that all three are plausible explanations. When you think about it, you think of the implications of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not gonna be here with you. To the disciples, who's gonna go through grief that Jesus has left them. But he's saying, in a little while, I will be with you too. But the point about this passage is this is whatever you take the meaning of this particular passage in history and for you, is that there are little wiles in life. There are little wiles in all our life. And little wiles require waiting. Little wiles require waiting. (coughs) If you know your Bible and you look through the Bible, you'll see that regularly God seems to make his people wait. God's timetable is very different from our timetable. We think in terms of seconds, a little bit like Amazon, you know, "I want it, want it now, I'll have it now, and then we can move on. But God doesn't seem to work on the same timetable that we do. It's clear that throughout Scripture God keeps His people waiting. God will not be rushed. God will not be rushed. For example, Abraham is 75 years old. When God promises a child, you imagine you're 75 and and God promises you a child. But Abraham waited another 25 years before God fulfilled that promise. Or think of Moses. Think of Moses, the old King James Version. uh, talks about Moses being in the backside of the desert for 40 years. 40 years in the wilderness before God appeared to him in a burning bush. It has huge application for us in our Christian walk, in our Christian discipleship, and our lives today. We really genuinely struggle to wait on God. We really genuinely struggle to wait for God, on God. We struggle to wait for His timescale. We're impatient to see our wills done We assume that doors will fly open we'll go through them we'll be really really kind of take control of stuff and we'll make stuff happen we'll see immediate success and that's a sign that we're great but we get then get to the door and we find that the door is closed in our life the door that we thought would open the door that we thought led to blessing shuts where are you lord where are you lord What's my life come to? What's going on here? This isn't what I thought the deal was. In the Bible and also in life, God frequently has us wait. God made the children and the people of Israel wait for 400 years before before he took them to the promised land. The nation of Israel had to wait thousands of years before the long promised Messiah that we celebrate this Christmas, we're told to wait. We're told to wait. So why does God make us wait? What's going on with God if we're called to wait? Why are we called to wait? What's that about? A pastor friend of mine um, said to me a number of years ago Something that I, th- at the time he said to me, I was chatting to him at the time he said something, I thought, do you know, that is massively overstated, what you've just said. And I disagreed with him, and I thought he was, wasn't talking sense. But one of the things he said, he said this. He said, your walk with God, or your discipleship, will be t- determined by two things specifically in your life. It'll be t- determined by the way you deal with waiting, and the way you deal with suffering. By the way you deal with waiting and the way you deal with suffering. See, in those places of waiting and suffering, God gets to work in our lives in a way that we don't normally let him. God is always in the business of wanting to reshape us, reform us, to transform us, to be at work changing us. God is at the business of wanting to grow us up before we get and grow old. And God uses two of the main ways in which God gets our attention and gets us to do that is by waiting, but also by dealing with suffering as well. And when we're in those places, you may be different, but certainly it's true for me and I've seen it true for most of the people I know. We're forced to acknowledge in those places of pain and the places of waiting, though actually we're not in control of our destinies. We're actually forced to acknowledge our limitations. We're forced to recognize there's only so much in this life that we can do in our own power and in our own strength. There are only so many questions that we can answer, only so many things that we can do. And it's during those times of pain and of waiting that God starts to prise our hands off the control of our lives and he gets to work. He prizes the death grip some of us have on our lives and some of our things and he starts to get to work, wanting to reshape us and reform us, to remake us to ground us deeper into him, a deeper relationship with him. It's at those points, at those points of our limitation that we realize, actually, I need to call out to God for salvation. I need to call out to God for help. I need to call out to reach for him, for wisdom, for strength, for power, because otherwise, I'd just do it in my own strength, and it'll all be about me rather than him. I wonder whether you would say that's true of you this morning. Is that true of you today? Is it true of me? That's what God wants to do in us. But there are two specific situations that come to mind when we're waiting for God The first is when we're waiting to God to answer our prayers. I'm sure you've been there many times. You may have said many, many prayers, and you think, well, why hasn't God answered me in your relationship with God? In an instant society where I can click on the internet, Amazon can deliver to me, why doesn't God answer me like that? I've gotta wait for answers to prayer. What's that about? We say, God, I'm in pain, heal me. God, my child is away from God. Bring them back to, to you. My grandchild, my wider family. There's eating. Lord, do it now. Do it now. Save them. But God calls us to wait. And during that question, during that time of waiting, God starts to ask us some questions of you and me. And the questions we ignore except when we are forced to wait till we go through suffering of this. God speaks to us and he says this. Will you accuse me of not caring about you, of not being intending your life for good? Will you accuse me of not being someone who abandons the promises of God, a God who doesn't care or deliver you, of knowing not what best, what's best for you, Of the world. And during those times of waiting where we come to God with all those questions, whether we verbalize it or actually they rest in our heart, God speaks to us in those places and said, In those places of waiting, in that place of suffering, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? The second place uh, we have to wait is when we're waiting for God's deliverance. In our instant society, we spend years uh, developing bad habits and addictions in our life. Sorry, I'm being very direct, but if you're honest, uh, as I hope you are this morning, you'll recognize some of this true, is that we get habits developed in our lives, then we say to God, we develop all these habits over life and say, God, God, deliver me from this. I'm ready for change today. I've had enough of all this mess I've made of my life. Deliver me. And sometimes God does. But as people who have spent years developing bad habits to do with addictions, to do with, I don't know, whatever whatever it is, whether it's alcohol, whether it's our use of the internet, whether it's drugs, it may be sex, it may be food, And I can, as a pastor, again and again, people come to you and say, doesn't God care for me? He hasn't delivered me from this thing that's in my life. Why hasn't he delivered me today? Let me give you an example. And this is a very practical example. Let's, for example, take marriage as an example. If you speak to any marriage counselors, one of the things they'll attest to again and again is this. They say, particularly in Christian counseling, is that they say, you know, I meet couples, they come to Christian counseling, and they say, Do you know what, it's not really for us. Really? It's not for us? So let me just check, you've spent 25 years forcing incredibly destructive habits in your relationships, fighting with one another like cat and dog, carrying along with you a truckload of grudges towards your mate, And one cancelling session didn't fix it? Hmm. Clearly marriage cancelling isn't the answer for you. And churches like ours, I believe passionately in healing. I believe passionately in deliverance. I believe passionately that God can just do it. I'm for that, I'm on that all the time. I will pray for anybody and we'll offer an opportunity at the end of this service if you want to, to be prayed. It's the the God of Scripture, it's the God who's here today. But alongside that message of healing and deliverance that happens instantaneously, we also need to recognize the slow transformation that God develops in our lives through developing healthy habits, of godly habits, of living with God day by day, by day that gradually bring about the transformation in our lives. Most Christian growth is a result of those godly habits that day by day by day you develop in your life that lead us to fruitfulness, to peace, through prayer, through fellowship, through meeting one another, through serving. And gradually our hearts change, our behaviors change, and our attitudes to change. Christian growth takes time. And that, for me personally, is why in my, some of the things I've done in the past, I do appreciate organizations, for example, like Alcoholics Anonymous. At least they're honest about the fact that the 12 steps are going to be really hard work. It's going to be hard work for most people. That change often doesn't happen alone. That change happens, lasting change, lasting transformation, godly transformation happens in community now the interesting thing about um the bible and about waiting is that the bible does link together as said in our reading today links together joy and waiting in human culture you don't in the culture today we can talk joy but suffering and joy don't go together at all waiting and joy don't go at they're just completely at conflict But the Bible brings together joy and trials. The Bible brings together joy and difficulties. The Bible brings together joy and waiting. Listen to some of the verses that are everywhere for those who know your New Testament. 2 Corinthians 8.2 In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 you became imit- imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with a joy given by the Holy Spirit. James 1, 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. 1 Peter 4, 13. But rejoice, and as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Joy is is the mark of christian faith it's joy often in the most unusual places that makes a massive testimony to people who don't know jesus joy in difficulty joy in suffering joy in waiting that can be distinct in our christian witness we don't pretend suffering doesn't exist we don't pretend we're not waiting but we can live in joy whilst undergoing all those things too I think most people can recognize, and I have hear it again and again and again, is people say, you know, I can understand why you're so angry in your life. You know, I can understand why you're so grumpy with whoever it is. You know, you go to the train and the people teach, treat you badly, and you get really cross with people constantly around town or constantly in life. You've been treated badly. All of us, can identify with injustice, with suffering, as part of our human condition. But when we experience joy and suffering together, that is something different. There's something different going on in your life. When a Christian expresses joy in the face of difficulties, joy in the face of waiting, it's because a Christian is actually rejoicing not falsely, in the pain that they're going through. We're not masochists. Not, for example, someone going through cancer, pretending we don't suffer. The Christian is rejoicing in the good they find. Here's what uh, Miroslav Wolf, who's one of the great living theologians today, he puts it this way. He says this. When we rejoice while suffering, it is because of some good that is ours, despite suffering for instance we join God's character God's deeds and the promise of God's redemption in Jesus or because of the good that suffering will produce in us for instance a child for a mother in childbirth that image of a mother giving birth to a child who goes through pain to produce something that is incredible But put more abstractly, joy despite is possible on account of joy because. We rejoice because we have and we know something, someone good. Joy is God's goodness. Here's what we read earlier on in the passage in verse 7 of the passage, just before the passage, Maureen read to us. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it is for your good. These these words contain the most basic Christian belief. The most basic statement of faith that a Christian can make about God in this fallen world. That despite all the badness, despite all the evil, despite all the brokenness, despite all the challenges, despite all the fullness, God is good. That despite all the kind of muck and dirt, I can experience, still experience the goodness of God in this world today. All that God does, all that God is, is good. He's always looking for my good. That's God's nature, that's God's person. I wonder whether that's your faith this morning. Is that your approach to the world? That God is good and He intends good and works for good all the time in all the circumstances of your life. And this isn't about pretending that everything's fine. Life can be very painful in this world. John says it in the verse before in verse 6, rather you are filled with grief because I have said these things. It is a reality of our life that all of us will go through disappointment. You might be sat here this morning as someone who is constantly disappointed in life. Maybe you're hurting this morning. Maybe your heart is broken over some circumstances in your life and you actually feel very, very alone this morning. We can all feel misunderstood, we can feel abandoned, but do you carry, whilst experiencing all those things, an understanding and a knowledge that God is good all the time? He's always up to something good in my life if I'll find him and discover him, even through pain, even through difficulty. So how do we find that joy? Joy despite my waiting, joy despite my pain, joy despite the craziness that's going on in Britain today. How do Christians find joy in the face of everything that the world throws of us? Well, we find joy in God's goodness. We find it uh, in his goodness through others too. I want just to say, go back to verse seven in the same uh, passage of, of John 16, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. There is in the Bible a really strong connection between joy and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's what we read in Acts 13, 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 1:6, you became imitators of God and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Here's the point this morning. If you want to experience joy, you need the fullness of the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's a work that starts on the inside and goes outwards. Most of us when we experience trials, we're going through difficulties, and we're in the pressure, really difficult season, of waiting where nothing seems to be happening. Our relationships are under pressure. Our finances are under pressure. Our solution is to change all the outward circumstances of our life. I need to change my job. It's all about my job. I need to change my, all my circumstances. I need to change the city I'm living in. I need to change this relationship. I need to, to change my house. I need to change all the outward things, but not the inward. If I do all the outward things, I'll find joy. And there is wisdom in changing some of those things. I'm not arguing that that's not true. But biblical joy doesn't primarily involve getting a new wardrobe or some Christmas lights from Ikea. Biblical joy is about transformation from the inside out. And we can make all those outward changes and never discover joy. The way we find joy is to experience be filled up with the Holy Spirit, filled up with the presence of God. I want to finish by reading a letter from a lady uh, called Bonnie. This is her experience. In January of 2005, I was diagnosed with late-stage colon cancer. After surgery, we learned that the cancer was a rare, particularly aggressive form, called signet cell carcinoma, which has a very poor prognosis. The surgeon removed the tumour and affected lymph nodes, but commented that it had to leave one node that appeared to be cancerous because of its proximity to a major artery. I began an intense chemotherapy protocol that lasted a full year, along with all the side effects that went with chemotherapy and the other complications. Unfortunately, The chemo damaged my liver and I went into liver failure in January of 2006. My doctor told me there was nothing more that they could do for me. But when the doctors told me my illness was terminal, I said, that's okay because my joy is not terminal. Throughout my diagnosis, joy was my constant theme. The joy of the Lord continued to be my strength through surgery, through chemotherapy, through blood clots, through side effects, through fatigue, through liver failure and our prognosis of death. I can tell you that the joy of the Lord is real. It's constant. And it will carry you through any situation that, as I have lived it. I could write a book about my experience. But let me conclude by telling you now that I have now been 12 years cancer free. My oncologist still can't believe that I'm here. And for the past year, I haven't even had to go for annual checkups because I have been completely restored, completely healed. A blood clot had caused an infarction on my spleen. And when God healed me, the infarction disappeared. My spleen is completely intact and undamaged. But she said this, one thing I would always tell people though, you need to pray forward. You need to have a close walk with the Lord before the doctor says, cancer. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, joy is found in the presence of God. And so do what you have to do to be in the presence of God. Where the presence of the Lord is, This Christmas, there is joy. This morning, if you have come with a sense that deep down in your life that your life is a mark for joy, we'd love to take the opportunity to pray for you. You may believe somehow, come to believe in your life, that you're not worthy of God's love, we're not worthy of joy. You may be going through suffering, significant suffering, disappointment, failure, or sickness. That does not define you. They don't mean that your life is unworthy of God or worthy of joy. Maybe you need to ask that the Lord would restore the joy of his salvation in your life, as the hold some of those things have over your life at the minute, and laid again at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. to take a, a moment of quiet to wait on God. If you know that this morning the theme of joy is a real challenge in your life, I'd just encourage you to put your hands open in your lap. and to receive what God has for you this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your extraordinary love for us. Would you send your spirit afresh upon us? You would draw each one of us into your presence afresh, where we can encounter the God of joy, the person of joy, that is Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. Minister your joy, your um, refreshing, and your renewing life into our lives this morning. Father, I pray particularly for some people here this morning who've believed that you've left them or you're not interested in them, you don't care for them because they're going through tough things, and they're believing lies about who you are and that you you desire good in their lives. I pray, Lord, that you would come afresh to those people particularly, that you would minister your grace. Set us free, Father, I pray, to be people of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like someone to pray for you this morning, you know there's something specific you've come with and you'd love someone just to lay a hand of you and bless you, do come to the front, to my right, your left, and someone would love to pray for you.